0: the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carla Manning. Thank you for being here and welcome to the show. I am glad you are here. I hope that all is well, and I'm excited for our conversation today as we're going to have a very intriguing conversation with the psychologist, Dr. Tasha Brown. So thank you, Tasha, for being on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, we're glad to have you, Tasha. Before we begin, Tasha, if you can, can you just kick us off with introduction of yourself? You know, Tell us who you are. Tell us about the work that you do and your areas of expertise within psychology.
1: Sure. So hey, everyone. I'm excited to be here. My name is Dr. Tasha Brown. I am a
0: licensed clinical
1: psychologist in the state of New York. And my role as a clinical psychologist looks different because I operate in two different types of spaces. So my day job, (laughs) I am a psychologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Medical Center. And my role there is twofold, actually. I work in a school-based setting, and so the hospital has a, a psychology clinic set up in Several elementary schools in the New York City area, which is amazing because we're able to kind of work directly in the school setting, providing the services we would provide in a regular outpatient mental health clinic, but we're right in their school. Mm -hmm. And so that allows us to speak with their teachers, that allows us to pull them out of class, that allows us to respond to emergencies. It lets us collaborate with principals and school psychologists and everyone in the building. And so that's part of my role. And then I'm also. I run a program called PCIT, Parent-Child Interaction Therapy, at the hospital where I work with kids who have significant behavioral difficulties. So these are the kids who are having a really hard time with their behavior, and we work on teaching their parents the skills that they need to manage some of the behaviors at home. Mm -hmm. So in that role, I provide clinical work, and I also supervise interns, externs, and staff who want to get trained in PCIT, because I am a within-agency PCIT trainer. So that's my day job. (laughs) And then I also have a private practice. Tasha and Brown Psychological Services. And in my private practice, I see children, adolescents, and young adults, actually. My private practice right now is, I would say, if you look at my work NYP versus private practice, more of my private practice patients are like teenagers, young adults, and I have a handful of young kids. And I work a lot with parents. I also like to call myself a parent consultant because I do a lot of work with parents so just around how to navigate different things with their children and their mental health. Yeah, and I'm trying to run a social media platform and kind of give people access to more information around mental health for their children and adolescents because I know for our community, it's important that we get information in ways that we can consume and in ways that not only can we consume the information, but then we can actually go and use the information in a way Absolutely. that's really helpful. So I think that's part of my role on social media. I see it as
0: a place where I can give information in a way that's going to be digestible. Okay, excellent. This is great. So can you start us off by explaining your background and interest in psychology and why you work with children, adolescents, and families, but particularly children and families of color in urban contexts?
1: Yes, I can kind of take you through my journey. So I always knew I wanted to work with kids. But that was uh, always a given ever since I was a kid. I was like, I love babies. I love kids. <laughs> I'm a baby a kid myself. <laughs> so I knew that was something that I wanted to do off the bat. When I was a teenager, so we went to church and I grew up in a church that was in the Bronx in New York mm-hmm. City. And it was a primarily like Caribbean population, Jamaican population. And I remember this family came to the church and they had a it was a son a daughter and a mom and the son had like disruptive behavior so he was having tantrums like yelling at his mom hitting kicking hitting and kicking anybody who would try to like intervene and I was like fascinated by not his behavior but I was fascinated by how everyone was responding to his behavior so I feel like everyone was trying so hard to like figure something out, but it just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So people were like, you just need to beat him. You just need to like have him go sit there, and just put him in the room. Like everyone had all these suggestions, but I don't think at that age, I was like, I feel like there's something missing here. I feel like they're missing the mark. And so I was like, all right, I think I want to work with kids who have like these type of behavioral difficulties. And I think because I don't ever think I had it in my mind that I would be working with any other population other than like black and brown children. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever could like thought about that. Mm -hmm. And it could be which just how I was introduced to my introduction and my interest in kind of working with kids with behavioral concerns. And then I ended up meeting a woman, Dr. Shauna K. Denham. I met her at a woman's retreat. I was a teenager and she was a presenter. She was a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. And now in retrospect, I'm trying to think, I wonder like what, if she was already graduated or if she was in training, I don't know. But I was like, oh, she does like what she's talking about. Like I would do that. I want to do that. And so I was like, I want to be a clinical psychologist because I saw her and I was like, that's what I want to do. And so I went to college. I actually didn't go to college with a psychology major. I went with the child and family studies major. Well, that's close. It's related. Yeah. Cause I was like, I don't think I had really said like, I want to do psychology. And then I ended up adding it very shortly after. And I also ended up adding African-American studies minor. Okay. I did like all these programs in college that really Focused on helping me get into graduate school because if you think about the numbers of Black people in graduate school programs, especially clinical psychology programs, we know they're very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really into a few programs that helped me navigate that, and then I went to grad school at DePaul University in Chicago. Yes,
0: I'm, I'm from Chicago. I know about uh, You're Chicago. from Chicago,
1: yeah. and so I loved my program because the. The emphasis of the program was making sure that we were serving Black, brown children from underrepresented communities. And so everything, every part of our coursework, all of our clinical experiences, like that was always the emphasis. Mm -hmm. And so my training is really with the population that I work with now. After I left Chicago, I was there for five years. I moved to Miami. That's so random, for two years (laughs) for internship and my postdoc. And the population I worked with there was a little bit different, primarily like Hispanic community, Mm -hmm. a little higher SES than I was with the Chicago, but I got excellent training there in like PCIT and just fundamentals of psychology, great training experience. And then I moved back to New York where I'm from and I started working at New York Presbyterian where I serve primarily, I work in Washington Heights. Uh (laughs) So we know that that is very, an area with black and brown children who a lot of them live below the poverty line. And in my private practice right now, what I'm noticing is that most of the people who are coming to me are coming to me because they're looking for a Black therapist. Mm -hmm. They're looking for a Black therapist for their child, for themselves, for their adolescent. And so my private practice right now is primarily, not all, but primarily Black and brown children, adolescents, and families. And I love it all.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So let me ask you, though, you mentioned, I think this is a good point, a good talking point. You mentioned that a lot of parents are looking specifically for a Black therapist. Why do you think that's the case? What is it about a Black therapist? What sort of affordances do Black therapists have with Black children that makes them a unique and a unique, to be in a unique position to provide therapeutic services versus a therapist that's white or Hispanic?
1: Yeah, number one, there's not a lot of us. I think we have to say that and talk about that. And I think that is something that as a field, we need to address internally and think about how we can have more diverse representation in the field. So it's very interesting. When you look at the research on this, there is the research that suggests that it doesn't matter. Mm. Uh, There are certain things that you can connect with your therapist on and racial preference for... Some things doesn't play with therapeutic outcomes. Mm -hmm. So you can still get the benefit of therapy, even if there's a mismatch in race with your provider. And I think to a certain extent, I believe that. I feel like if you have a good clinician who is trained and who is able to look at their patient as a whole person and understand their context and understand all the things that they're bringing into the room, they can do amazing work. I think families are looking for a Black therapist because there are certain things we don't have to explain. There's just a certain understanding, a certain comfort. Mm-hmm. A lot of parents say they want their children to have a service providers who look like them so that, number one, they can get help and also so they know, like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I can be a service provider. I can be a person who is doing this because mm-hmm. all of my service providers look just like me. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of parents saying that. And then there's things that just don't need to be explained. And I think we live in a world right now, especially this year, I've been hearing this mostly this year, where after George Floyd's murder and kind of uh, everything that followed, I think this idea of making sure that we are taking care of ourselves and taking care of our children and adolescents and parents, I think part of that whole messaging and part of that time for them was about, I want to make sure that... I'm keeping my child's mental health concerns within the community and someone is serving so that they understand the context and I don't have to explain it or I don't have to wonder if they get it. Mm. Or I can just say certain things. There's a different comfort level. Mm. (laughs) I can Mm. say certain things and and know that it, it will be interpreted in the way that it's meant to be. So I think there's so many reasons why families are choosing and wanting their child to see clinicians who look like them
0: absolutely absolutely and i can appreciate the fact that you brought up george floyd because you know i think his murder was a huge um mm-hmm. i would say it sparked a huge awakening in a lot of people and mm-hmm. in many different ways and one of the sparks that came about was i think parents began to realize the need to talk about racism mm-hmm. and racial injustice with their children mm-hmm. uh, because of the fact that it was recorded and visualized, a lot of children had access to watch that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and and this has not been the first time, but, you Mm -hmm. know, I'm curious, what might be some talking points? You know, if we can sort of switch the conversation and begin to think about how can we start having conversations about racism, about race, and racial injustice with our children. And I wanna ask you that question like in two contexts, one like from a parent perspective and then one from a teaching perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So how can parents begin to have these conversations and then how can teachers begin to have these conversations? Particularly though with young children, like first graders, second graders, third graders, young children who may not have the cognitive ability to really be able to process all of these occurrences on a deep level. Mm -hmm. how can we start to have these conversations
1: yeah I think that those are really great questions I want to start with just that idea that our children are exposed to this and that's traumatic that's Mm -hmm. traumatic for all of us who watch that video or who are exposed to that video even if we didn't want to be exposed like that's trauma seeing someone murdered on television repeatedly is traumatic and I've been talking a lot with parents about just being mindful of their child's consumption of the news. Yep. Their consumption of the news without oh, an adult present to kind of be the filter to like explain like why things are happening and all of that stuff. So I think that's my like be careful how you let your child consume the news. Mm-hmm. I would even say your child if they're under age of 13 shouldn't be watching the news, mm-hmm. especially unsupervised. So how to have this conversation. This I think is uh, important topic. So number one, when I talk with families about this, because I have my own views about how to have this conversation, but I also recognize that Black people are not the same in how they want to have this conversation across households. Mm -hmm. So there could be like five of us on a block and we're having a very different conversation than the Johnsons are having. And then the Smiths are having a very different type of conversation. So I always tell parents to, before they have a conversation with their child about race, racism, think about what messaging do you want your child to understand? Like what value, family values and personal values do you have that you want your child to walk away with the conversation with. Mm -hmm. And so for some families, that's like, don't trust the police. Like, we don't trust the police here. Mm -hmm. And for some families, that's, uh, okay, we can trust the police, but we need to be careful. And for Mm -hmm. some families, that's, no, we trust the police until there's, like, so it's very different. And so I don't ever want to impose what my ideas are on to the family in terms of, like, what exactly are you talking about? Mm -hmm. However, there are certain things within the framework of your family values and what you want your child to understand, there are certain things that I definitely think that you should pay attention to. Number one, being mindful of your child's developmental level. And so I love that you separated the conversation between how can we talk to young kids about this versus how do we talk to older children about this? Mm -hmm. Young children always start with, what do you know? What have you heard? Like, hey, I know there's been a lot going on. You probably heard something on the news. What do you know about this? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they might know a whole bunch and it's wrong. Sometimes they might be right on track, but that gives you the ability to start the conversation right at your child's developmental level. Mm -hmm. If they say, well, I heard that all white people hate black people. There you go. You have their knowledge base and then you can provide conversations moving forward. So with both age groups, I say, start the conversation there. What do you know? With your older children, if you feel comfortable, share with them news articles. If you feel comfortable getting into the details, you're not going to talk to the uh, five-year-old with extreme details about what happened. because That's scary. It's scary for an older child too, but they can cognitively and emotionally consume that in a very different way. So start with what you know, where you've heard it from with the older kids. Where did you hear this from? How do you feel about that? Same thing with the younger kids. But understanding that you don't want to overburden your younger children with more fear than necessary. Absolutely. Um, And so keeping that in mind in your conversations. And also, that's, I've had some people say to me, well, no, I'm going to tell my five year old every single thing. And often I say, what, I want you to think about the utility of that because it's a conversation that continues. For Black people, we don't have the luxury of saying, all right, I'm going to have this conversation with you once. And then never again, we have to have this conversation when kids are five, silly, right. when they're seven, then again, we need to have the conversation when they're 16, like it's an ongoing conversation. It just doesn't end. Mm-hmm. And so being very mindful of that. So you're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk to your children about what to do if the police pull them over, what to do if their friends are acting crazy in the street and they're walking home and they're the only black person. Like you're going to have so many conversations about that. So, being mindful that you don't need to lay it all on at once and think about your child's context. So, if you're having this conversation with your middle schooler, they are exposed to more things. They're not around you as much, they have more independence. Your right. little one, you probably know where they are all the time, you know who their friends are, you're probably at their play dates with them. Your older kids, you don't have that. And so, just being mindful of their context and just the differences in their lived experiences. Mm-hmm. I think. The second thing I always tell parents to do both age groups is making sure you're creating a safe space for the discussion to actually happen. Mm. And so inviting the conversation. So, hey, what have you heard about this? Some kids are not going to just want to talk about it right away, Mm. especially if they're being deeply impacted or if they are just uncomfortable with it. But you want to end and start every single conversation with, the disclaimer that if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, if there's anything you're worried about, if there's anything you want to talk about more, like you can talk to me Mm. uh, so that they know that you are there and you know your child. For the younger ones, you might have to initiate that conversation. You can introduce books. There's like great books and resources out there for your younger ones. If they're watching something, you're watching television and you see something, you'd be like, hey, that's kind of what we talked about earlier. Like, what mm-hmm. did you think about that? Create safe spaces for discussion, like based on the context. Listen, listen, your child's gonna tell you, like, you're not going in there to just drop knowledge. <laughs> you're also going in there to listen to what they are saying. I can't tell you the amount of times that a child will come into my office and wanna talk about current events with me. And I'm talking about the younger ones, like uh, under seven. They'll be so excited to tell me about something that's going on in the news. And then when they tell me what's going on, I'm like, where did you get that from? Like their understanding of what's happening is like so off. Mm. And so <laughs> it's really important that you listen to what they're actually saying because mm. then you like, no, like that's not what happened. Or that. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can provide correction like as it goes. Adolescents have a better understanding and, and they're older, so their understanding is now infused with the context of their life and how they're interpreting things. So they might understand things when they see something racist. They might be like, and this is why I don't want to hang out with this set of people. Or, this is why... I feel like I shouldn't go here. Younger kids are not good, they're not there yet cognitively. Mm. And so when you listen to each one, you're listening for different things. Younger ones, you're listening for understanding. You want to make sure that you can correct any misconceptions or mm. misinformation older ones, you want to listen for their emotional response and kind of how they're making meaning of their life and how they're making meaning of how they want to navigate life moving forward. That's Mm going to be really important. You want to validate their emotional response. I remember right after George Floyd's murder, a lot of parents were coming to the sessions and they were like, I don't know what's wrong with my child. Like they're not having any emotional response. Like they just don't want to talk about it. And that's an emotional response as well. Like not wanting to talk about something Mm -hmm. or shying away from a conversation, that's an emotional response. And so you want to validate where your child is. So I understand that this is not something you want to talk about right now. However, when you're ready, you know, I'm here to have this conversation. Absolutely. Adolescents usually kind of have like a bigger kind of response. And so I know you're really pissed off that this happened. I know that you're really angry. I know you're really anxious. It's understandable that you're anxious and, and angry and you feel frustrated. Like all those things are under- validate Take
0: their emotional response, even if it's not yours. Mm. And even if it's a, a response that you may not even agree with. Exactly. And even if it's mm-hmm. a response that you
1: won't even agree with. I re- I, so because I live in New York and because a lot of my patient in New York during that time, there was uh, protests everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so parents would be like, can you believe they want to go to the protest? Like, I'm not letting. And so it was like this point of contention in the house of like mm-hmm. many patients and their families because there was like not agreement on if protests were something that you should participating, because parents are like, I would never do the protest. I think that is fine for us to just have this conversation here. And so your children are, although you raise them, although you try to impart all their values on them, especially as they get older, they don't always share all your values. That's true. They don't share your same, they don't share all of your reactions. And so it might look different. It might be one that you're like, whoa, like, where'd that come from? I do not Uh agree with this, but you need to validate that. And yet there's going to be rules and stuff in your home around like how you conduct yourself and all that stuff, but give them space to feel that and want to respond in ways that are authentic to them.
0: To them. Right. Right. Even though a child is your child, they are still their own person. They still have to be themselves.
1: Yep. They are a person. And I think even as young, sometimes I think in our community, parents are like, no, like you're the child. You do as I say. <laughs> you do exactly what I say. Let me tell you about the young adult clients that I work with. Like, we do a lot of work, like, working through that. Mm. Like, this idea of, I grew up in a space where my parents were like, you just do everything I say. Like, I run this, period. You don't have to say, period. You're the child, period. Right. Like, is that, and then the transition into adulthood, it gets murky. So yeah, just like your child, be, <laughs> be individuals. So yeah. that you're not, like, trying to process kind of, how to figure out that dynamic after. That's good. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important because the impact that that has, just not being allowed to be yourself or have Mm -hmm. your own emotional response or or have that emotional response and not have it validated. Like a child is upset about something. You're like, oh, you'll get over it. Or Mm -hmm. like, why are you so upset about that? Because they're upset about it. Mm, mm. <laughs> they ask you why you're so upset. That's yeah. So that's a whole yeah. other. Yes. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Yeah. No. That's good though. Mm-hmm.
1: And in validating your child's response, you want to model authenticity. Mm. So you want to show how you're reacting. Mm. The way that you react with your younger one so you're going to keep in developmental level in mind always. The way that you model authenticity with your younger child is very different than you're going to model authenticity with your older child. Mm-hmm. With your younger one, you'd be like, "I'm angry." Mm. So your older one, you can be like, I'm angry. I'm so pissed about this. Like, this is what I did. and This is how I felt. You can, mm. you can show more because they can handle more. Mm. Not that your, your, your younger child shouldn't see that or, or it's just too much for them sometimes to see their parent in like that type of emotional state. So just be authentic, but be authentic in a developmentally appropriate way. That way your child knows like, it's okay to have an emotional response to this. And if you have different responses to it, they'll learn it's okay for me and my parents to have a different emotional response to this. Like my mom is really angry about this and I don't really want to talk about it right now, but she's told me it was okay, but she is showing that she's upset. It shows them that this is something that people are upset about and it's okay for families to exist in units where people operate differently.
0: Yeah, yeah. So one thing I, I want to think about is like this topic of like healing from racial trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what you said addresses this issue of racial trauma, but I specifically want to think about racial trauma in ways, and I know this wasn't on the conversation <laughs> handout, <laughs> but i just give you some context. Earlier today, I just did a training with the school district around implicit bias. And one of the topics that I talked about was the doll test from Dr. Kenneth and Mamie Clark and mm-hmm. the whole idea as you are familiar with is you know trying to understand how and why children identify themselves in these like sort of racially subjective ways but mm-hmm. i think about Mamie and Kenneth Clark and who they were as psychologists and what their work was really about was working through racial trauma with students or children but particularly when children internalize these like self-limiting or even mm-hmm. negative ideas and conceptions about themselves based on their racial identities, you know, believing that because they are Black, that means that they are automatically fill in the blank. They are automatically not valuable. They are ugly. They are not worthy. Right. They, you know, all of these things. Can you talk about that? Like, how can we work with children who may have internalized these negative associations with themselves and with their identities just because of the fact that they are Black? Yeah, I think that is. And that study
1: has been replicated several yeah. times since, and they find the same thing. The same findings are still the same. Yep. Yeah, the findings yep. are still the same. And, and that speaks to the fact there's been no change. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if our children are still internalizing these things in, in very strong ways to the point where they can look at two dolls and when they when the researcher says like, which doll is ugly, which doll is bad, they point to the doll looks, looks like themselves and then still can say, which doll looks like you and point to the same doll that they just identified as like mm-hmm. ugly or, and, or bad. I like to speak about this from, from a prevention aspect. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, I think that we have to really work towards preventing this. When people say like representation matters, like that is a real statement. And so thinking about the toys your children are exposed to, the TV programming, and this has to happen from a family level and from a a systemic level. So when educators are thinking about their curriculum, what books they read, what things they learn about in terms of history, what topics they talk about, who comes into the classroom for career days. You want to make sure that there are people who are black and brown who are represented across the board and not just splashed in for like Black History Month or splashed in once in a blue moon. Like you want to make sure that that is consistent. If there's a worksheet and there's five kids on that worksheet, you better make sure each one of them are look different, have some different. So this idea of diversity becomes something that is just a thing no matter what. If there's like a dolls in the classroom, making sure that there are dolls that look like everyone in that classroom. Mm. For parents, when you think about buying your children books, buying your children toys, making sure that the things you bring into your home have some, the people your children are looking at on these things, like look like them mm. or have similar experiences to them. So this way they grow up in a world where they don't think okay we only learn about these types of people or the only people who are in books are these types of people because attached to these books are stories right and narratives fairy right fairy tales and right. like good feel good family stories and we don't want our children thinking like only white children can experience these stories because that's what they're seeing and as adults we eventually understand from our traumatic lens that mm. These things could pertain to us, but kids don't understand that. This they're literal, and so like helping parents recognize and teachers recognize to diversify Mm. material that they are exposing children to as like Mm. a way of prevention. Mm. For teachers, thinking about your curriculum in terms of what you teach history-wise, thinking about Black history and American history as something you teach truthfully. And something that starts from the beginning, from the first day children walk into the the school building. It's not a conversation that is limited to certain parts of the year as a way of prevention. On a systemic level, we also have to think about diversifying fields. So we need to diversify what teachers look like in buildings. We need to diversify what doctors look like. What psychologists look like, what social workers look like, what every, like we need to diversify what children are exposed to on every single level. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always tell parents, like, don't be afraid to be like, that's not allowed in my house because you don't feel like it's a good representation for or something you want your child consuming because you don't think it's gonna be helpful to their identity. You can be picky about what it is. And we have to get vocal. Like, if you go to the store and you realize that there's no black dolls, you, can I speak to the manager? Why are there right. no Black dolls here? That's right. Or, or especially why, if
0: I, the store is in the Black community. Especially
1: if it's in the Black community. Or why yeah. am I looking at all your books and these are the only books that you have That's that right. diverse characters? We need to get vocal. It's not about just having it in the moment. Like Racial trauma is generational. Mm, mm, and that mm. study picks up on the fact that it's generational. Hey and diversity. so the work that we do to address that now or to prevent it now has impact for generations. Mm. And so that's gonna change how your children think about themselves. Then in turn is gonna change how they teach them their children about themselves and on and on and on and on and on. Mm. I like to think about it from a prevention aspect mm. and then a healing aspect, because we know that there are children who already kind of have these thoughts. It's never too late to beef up exposure. Mm. And, and kind of thinking about immediately calling out that thinking pattern or that thought that they're having as something that is just like not true about themselves and giving very concrete examples. I know you live in a world where like this is the, the images you get, but you are not X, Y, and Z. Hmm. And then there are things that we have to talk about, like systemic things like poverty, access to quality mental health care, access to quality health care that in some communities, and mostly black and brown communities. The access is not there for systemic reasons. And I think those are part of racial trauma. And so we have to think about ways that we can address those and change things and give kids a different worldview in their communities.
0: Indeed, indeed. (laughs) And I really think this is just such a powerful conversation for parents, for families, for teachers, for communities at large. So, as we close this conversation, Tasha, what might be a piece of advice or a word of advice that you could provide? To our listeners around this topic of having conversations, having authentic conversations about race and racism, as well as racial trauma, what might be a piece, a word of advice you could give to our listeners who, particularly, our school superintendents or school leaders who are working with children or in a leadership role, and who are working with educators and staff, what might be a word of advice? given your experiences, your area of expertise?
1: Mm -hmm. A lot of structural change starts at the top. And we know that like the way leadership chains work. And as a leader, you are responsible for the leadership of so many people. So the teachers, your staff, and children. So different generational pinpoints. And so making sure that when you think about how you're going to address these things in your school setting or your school district, that you're thinking about every developmental level that you have to reach. So the things that your teachers need, they need to talk about their own experiences. They need to talk about how it impacts them at work. They're gonna they need to talk about how racism shows up in their workplace. They need to talk about privilege. And then they also need to talk about then how does that translate into the work that they do. And so it's your responsibility as leadership to figure out how you can provide them with the tools that they can do that, whether that means like hiring an outside consultant, whether that means like saving some of your PD time for teachers to talk about these things, whether it means providing them with resources where they can kind of seek out help and therapy or tools for themselves and also things that they want to incorporate in their classroom. And then as leadership, it's also important that you think about the children and the adolescents and kind of thinking about, okay, I have my teachers taken care of in this way. It's not okay to just say, all right, I took care of the teachers. It's going to trickle down. Like we're not doing trickle down (laughs) effect with this. It's I'm going to address the teachers. And now let me think critically about how I'm going to make sure that each student is taught about race and racism in the curriculum. Each student is exposed to a diversity of things as they learn. Your job as leadership is not just to say, I talked about this, I addressed it. It's you need to critically think about this and address it and recognize how layered
0: the conversation is. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So, Tasha, thank you for your insight. Thank you for all of this. Yes, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for the strategies that you provided um, to us, Tasha. I think this will be very beneficial. If our listeners want to stay connected with you or if they want to reach out to you or even if they are perhaps interested in receiving your services, how may they be able to contact you? So there are a few ways that you can contact me. Number one, you can go to my website,
1: drtashabrown.com. On the website, all my contact information is there. My email address, my phone number. There's even a place where you can kind of type in and send me an email from the website. My email address, dr.tashabrown7 at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, dr.tashabrown, where I share a wide variety of mental health tips and information and statistics just about helping our children navigate this world. And I want parents to come away. Thinking, how can I parent? How can I be a caregiver? How can I be a teacher with value, knowledge and intention? So
0: yeah. that's Excellent. 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 Well, thank you, Tasha. Thank you for being a guest on the Equity Experience podcast. It has been a pleasure speaking with you and having you on here. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Okay. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I hope you have learned um, some valuable information and resources, (laughs) and I hope that you can help to utilize this information to help to create the equitable and inclusive classroom and school that you desire. So thank you for listening to the Equity Experience Podcast. This has been your host, Dr. Carla Manning. We are signing off. Be well and be blessed.